Let's talk oil. Let's talk natural gas. Let's talk energy. I mean, boy, that has been a hot topic. If you look at the markets, you look at oil, uh, you know, having a huge run in the last three months. Uh, natural gas is still the topic of conversation, really globally, actually, when you think of things. So we're very pleased to welcome back to the show, Joseph Schachter, Schachter Energy Report. But it's more than that. I mean, we've known jo uh, Joseph on this show for 20, 25 years. First, he worked in industry, though. He, and it was, all his research was done for companies. He still, of course, does that, but decided a few years ago, actually, it's about off the top of my head, six, seven years ago, to do the Schachter Energy Report for individual investors, where he recommends, says hold, says buy, says all of these kinds of things. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing his perspective on a very hot energy market at this point. Joseph, thanks for finding time with us. Oh, that's my pleasure, as always, Michael. Now, I'm also going to mention, I'll give some details later, but Joseph's got a monster conference coming up. Uh, it's one of a kind, uh, it's for, again, for individual investors. He does lots for businesses and for people in, the, in that business, but this is for individual investors. And I'll tell you more about that in a few minutes. But first, Joseph, let's give the, the, the big uh, overhead view. Are you bullish or bearish? I'm talking long term now. Are we still in a super sort of oil cycle, do you think? Yeah, I think we've talked before that I believe we, we started in 2020 a super, an energy super cycle. And there's been two before in my career. The one in 1974 to 1981 was when we saw Japan become the monster juggernaut economic power cars, Panasonic, Sony's, all the things we bought from them. And they became the, uh, at the margin, the big buyer of, of crude oil. And that was when we went also where OPEC was founded uh, in, you know, 73, 74. And the price of oil went from $2 uh, in 74 during the recession to $36 in 1981. And of course, then inflation went rampant and Volcker and the other central banks shut her down. The second cycle was uh, 1999 to 08. Uh, which was when the, China opened up to capitalism uh, on the business side under the communist umbrella. And they went from using less than 3 million barrels, producing four, uh, to consuming about 15 million barrels right now, still producing about four. So they're importing about 11 million barrels a day. Um, and we've seen the price of crude uh, during that cycle go from $10 uh, all the way up to 147 uh, at the top in the summer of 2008. The third cycle started in 2020. Um, and uh, of course, because of the COVID and all the rest of it, uh, we were down, as, as you know, $6 was the posted price of the next one, but negative pricing because of the short selling going on in, in Britain by the hedge funds there. Uh, and we've gone already to $130 after Russia invaded Ukraine. I think we're in a pause a little bit here. But I think before the cycle is over, before the end of the decade, maybe into the next decade, I think we're going to see all-time highs. And this cycle is the renewable cycle. We need more lithium, copper, nickel, all the things to create the renewable world that we want, solars, electric vehicles, uh, tidal, uh, all the things that we want to create uh, you know, low, low emission uh, energy. And that's going to require a massive investment in Chile, Argentina, all around the world to bring those to us, which means those countries are going to use a lot of conventional crude oil and natural gas and their, and their quality of life. They want a better quality of life for the people working there. All of that is going to mean that while the OECD demand will come down because of more use of EVs and more renewables, demand in the non-OECD will take off and rise significantly. So right now, I think we're looking at 102 million barrels a day of consumption in 20. 
2023, but that number could be um, probably 108 to 110 by the end of this decade, but all of the growth coming from the emerging world that will be providing us the raw materials we need to improve the environment in the industrialized world. Look, a couple of things there in what you're saying. It's interesting how, uh, you know, the need for all of those minerals that you mentioned, whether it's a rare earth, whether it's a lithium, copper, etc., all are going to require huge amounts of mining, huge mining machinery, you know, fueled by fossil fuels, you know, diesel or gas. And I just find it amazing that that's rarely acknowledged, even today, was never acknowledged going back just a couple of years ago, you know, as a demand side. And I, I just think that's an important point that you're making, because we're, we're not getting rid of this stuff quickly if you want to do the renewable side. I mean, as you say, it enhances the demand right there for that. Yeah, and in the meantime, the emissions that are that are going to be created in those other countries to create the the the, the new the the new world that we want to go into uh, are going to be substantial. And I think the the thing that really people need to focus on is yes, there's going to be emission growth in these countries as they develop these raw materials that we need, but the goal has to be that we get rid of the worst of the emitters, and that is coal. And if India and China would take a very forceful approach to closing down their coal industry, coal-fired utility industry, as we've done in North America, and as Europe is, is doing, except when they had the yes. problem after the invasion, uh, I think that that's going to be more helpful to meet the goal, climate goals of 2035 than any other thing we do. Yeah, the, the, the way that we have so much of the analysis, broadly speaking, has been so focused on domestics as opposed to failure to recognize the huge demand coming out of, you know, emerging markets, developing nations as they want to raise their standard of living. I mean, that's another monster component of the story that, again, gets ignored far too often. Yeah. And I think as people realize the number of employees that are going to be needed in the mines and in the manufacturing. And a lot of the companies want not only to be producing the lithium, they want to upgrade it yes. to the quality that's needed. So they're going to want those higher quality, higher value manufacturing jobs to stay in country, China, it be, it, be it China being forced to do it in Argentina, Chile, wherever. That's going to be part of it so that the industrialization and the higher quality of life and higher value system in their economy is going to be something they're going to be pushing for, not just to be producers of the raw material and having the high quality and high paying jobs going elsewhere. Uh, let me come back to China for a second and link it to the prices we're seeing today, because I would think it's, it's a fair statement to say the vast majority of analysts were sort of disappointed by the lack of recovery out of China or, you know, demand coming out of China. There, the scenario that was pretty well accepted was when China lifts those lockdowns, look out, you're going to see demand pick up everywhere. And, and clearly it has not, not to the degree that people were expecting. And yet, what do we find? We find, you know, oil having this really strong run over the last, say, three months to pick a time frame. Yeah, China's demand has gone down. Um, the, you know, the imports in China are down over 2 million barrels a day um, in the month of July versus the month of June uh, because of the slowdown in the economy. Uh, but the key thing is uh, OPEC originally said in, in June that they were going to cut back 1.2 million barrels in the months of July and August. And then the Saudis said, we're going to cut another million on top of it. So the Saudis have done that. They have cut back that number. 
But the other, not, you know, countries like Iran and Iraq and others have increased their production. And so uh, Saudi said, OK, we got to keep cutting back longer. One, we're going to keep it till the end of September. And then the announcement a week ago, which really popped oil by 10 bucks, uh, you know, on the upside, was that they were going to extend the cuts until the end of the year. And so that is where you're now seeing where IEA, the International Energy Agency, says we may have a shortage on some days of 3 million barrels a day yeah. during before during the winter of 2023-24. There's others like the EIA, the U.S. Energy Information Administration. They're saying that we will be balanced. And then there's others that are saying because of the big drop in China, problems in Britain and Germany, we may have a surplus building in the fourth quarter. So the right now, the dynamic is focused on the bullish side, i.e. there may be 3 million shortage listening to the IEA and, and uh, OPEC. But the, the reality is um, people need to realize that the U.S. is self-sufficient in energy. They're not a real importer. Just taking the data from Wednesday of this week, um, domestic production in the States went up 100,000 to 12.9 million. And the um, U.S. production of natural gas, liquids, and renewables, which are our bigger part of going on there, was a total of 8.9. So we're looking in the U.S. of, of numbers where the U.S. is producing uh, right now about 21 million barrels and uh, 21.8 million barrels, and the consumption is 21. So the U.S. is self-sufficient. The the and we going back to the data the you know of 2011, which is the farthest I could go back when I when I went back to the EIA data. U.S. crude production was 5.6 million barrels and uh, renewables were 4.25 for 9.89, but they were consuming 19.4. So they were net importing nine and a half million barrels a day. And the SPR at that time, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, had 700 million, 73 days of imports. The U.S. right now has 126 days of net imports because they're, they're, they're only importing a very small amount. So we're, you know, when everybody talks about SPR, SPR, I think it's a boogeyman that's not really something that's valid because SPRs were created to have the amount of fuel that was needed over 60 days of net imports in case there was a problem with the, the shipping industry or war or whatever. And the U.S. has more than enough given the uh, increase in shale production uh, that's happened with the Permium and the Eagleford. Um, and uh, the fact that the U.S. is now producing uh, 800,000 more a day than they were a year ago is quite a substantial, uh, you know, saying that these high prices and longer reach horizontal wells, more productivity from the fracking uh, that the, you know, and with the price of oil going up, tier three wells have now become tier two wells, tier, tier two wells have become tier one wells. So yeah. companies have way more wells to drill, which means we're, and even though the drilling rig count is down, the qual the production in the U.S. will continue to go up. The EIA is projecting that from that 12.9 of, of uh, this week, that the U.S. will average in 2024 13.2 million barrels a day of crude alone, which means they will potentially be an exporter uh, to Europe if there's ever a problem again uh, in Europe. Um, is there a number where you think oil gets to uh, and it creates demand destruction? Like people just say, I'm backing off. I'm, I'm not paying it. Like I find that easier to understand for me if it's gasoline. You know, once gasoline gets to a certain price, then people drive less. Is there a price for oil or is that just a ballpark kind of thing? 
Well, I think it's, it's you know, you've got to take into account also taxes, carbon yes. taxes now. So in Alberta, we're, we're, char- we're paying a buck 41 a liter. I think if we were a dollar seventy, dollar eighty, that would probably, you know, tell people maybe I shouldn't drive so much or maybe I'll go to the closest store rather than run to two or three. I think if you're over two dollars uh, a liter in B.C., I think that will have some impact on, 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 on the amount of yeah. uh, usage you'll have. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, Ontario is probably pushing two dollars right now. Well, I'm just laughing. I'm, I figure you just put that in there to give a dig to everyone in BC who says, what, under $2? Are you kidding me? I think, you know, the last time I, yeah, you're right. Last time uh, I saw talking to friends filling up, it's just under two, but we were above two out in British Columbia just a while ago. So yeah, <laughs> thinking of the Alberta price at 140, 145 seems pretty sweet. But uh, let me come also, uh, do you think the bullish case has now been absorbed in the price? And I'm only talking short term. I'm not, I'm not disputing the long-term super cycle. I'm just saying on a shorter term, are all the bullish factors dominating, but have they all been accounted for at this point? That, that, that's, you know, when you move 30% in about three months, you know, they're already anticipating those bullish numbers. Yeah, and um, there's one thing that I've, I've shown on, at the World Outlook Financial Conference and I put in our research is something called the S&P Energy Bullish Percentage Index. And when we had the bottom in March, when we went bullish and I was on your show yeah. and I said we were table pounding buying opportunity in the sector, we had a seven names on March 13th, seven on March 15th. The price of crude was 65 bucks. Now we're at you know, 90. I think we're getting a little overheated. The bullish percentage index uh, in March went down to uh, below 10 percent, went to like 8 percent. We're now 96 percent bullish. And I'm getting phone calls from people asking me, what should I buy now? who wouldn't listen in March. Yeah. So to me, this is like a short-term warning signal that we need a pause here. And we're suggesting to people, look, some stocks we recommended in March are up 50% from where they were in March. Maybe it's a little prudent to take some short-term profits, build up some cash reserves and wait for the next low-risk buying opportunity. Historically, you get two to three buying opportunities a year. So we got two in March. I think we may see some tax loss selling in the general market that will pull energy down because it's a high beta sector. Maybe we get one more buying opportunity. But anytime we have a low-risk buying opportunity where the bullish percentage is under 10%, my men, they're saying buy, 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 and we're, and we're coming up with ideas. If you're a conservative investor and you need yield and you want some capital gain, there's lots of ideas out there now. Even today, uh, you know, with the if you look at the pipelines and infrastructure yeah. stocks, Enbridge and TC Energy and Pamina, they've been hit hard here. Enbridge the worst because of that financing that they just did for that major buy that they did for utilities in the states. You know, you're looking at yields that are that are fabulous on these on these companies. Uh, just uh, pull out the yields here for a second. TC Energy, 7.7%. Um, Enbury, 7.8%. Well, if you buy in at the right price and you get 5%, 10% capital gain potential for conservative investors, that's a home run. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to do with that, but you don't trade your core position. I'm just talking about an investment approach. You keep your core position. And as you say, now you've had some big gains, you know, especially in such a short time frame, relatively speaking. So you're not selling your core, but you might be, creating some cash to take advantage later on. Yeah, like taking 10 to 15% off, uh, you know, you know, to being, you know, because stocks are up 50, 60% on, on the ones that I did uh, and the one that I did. 
And so my view was take some profits and, uh, and, and build up some cash reserves, all the dividend income that's coming in, put that in the cash reserves and be waiting for the next low risk opportunity uh, and add to the name. So we were down to maybe you know, four or five names before March. We're sitting with owning nine names right now personally on the energy space and then other areas and other markets uh, we have. My view is the maximum capacity for me is 12 and then build up the positions yeah. with greater amounts of capital. Um, that's more than most investors would have. Most people may only have two to four names in energy between pipeline, infrastructure, oil, service, et cetera, uh, and clean tech. Um, so to me, um, you know, I'm a more of a barbell approach because I know the sector and I spend a lot of time on it. And uh, what we do is when we put out a buy recommendation, we have to wait five days before Patty and I can buy it. And when we say sell, which we haven't said sell, but we, you know, we said take some profits, the same thing five days before we can trigger uh, uh, booking some gains. But um, it, to me, that's my comfort zone. And uh, you know, I, 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 I think the sector has a long way to go. Um, you know, for example, let's use TC Energy. Um, it, you know, it closed at 48.57 on my last run. Um, and uh, you know, it pays a 372 dividend quarterly, 7.7%. And uh, we have a target, a one-year target of 60, but a $90 target for the bull market peak. So you know, if you buy it at the right price, uh, that's you know, $60. If it happens in the next 12 months, is a pretty good uh, return. Um, and so that's the kind of thing that we're saying for conservative investors, more entrepreneurial names. Um, you know, if you take something like a Birchcliff, which has been a presenter at uh, your your conference uh, for the last number of years, the stock was 842. Uh, it pays an 80 cent dividend, so you're getting nine and a half percent yield, 20 cents a quarter. It's a fabulous yield, and we have a 15 dollar uh, one year target um, because we think LNG Canada is going to approve uh, Train Two, and we're going to see the coastal gas pipeline come on, and that's going to cause a, a pickup in prices. And we have a $25 bull market peak price. So there's lots of upside um, right across the sector and all the names that we cover. Um, and we're just saying, wait for, you know, late a little bit. Some of these stocks will come down a little bit. Um, you know, the pipeline infrastructures are down a lot now just in the last few weeks. But the natural gas focused stocks have been also weakened because of the 260, 270 MCF price. So the Gazi names and the pipeline utilities will probably be first on the where you want to be putting your toes in the water or getting more names. And then the oily names, if the price backs off below 80, you'll get another chance to buy oily names at good prices again. Uh, let me ask about natural gas itself. I mean, we obviously know about the U.S. shipments into uh, uh, to Germany, you know, that was much ballyhooed and it was an impressive sort of engineering feat to have that floating LNG plant, you know, up and running so quickly, especially as the Germans themselves said, I think it took them 20 years to build one of the uh, major airports and they got this thing done in about uh, 10 months. But is that creating sort of a, a more uh, international price? for natural gas. The more we see that, we see the demand, we see contracts being signed left, right and center by major buyers. I mean, uh, getting locking in their LNG, but is that creating a more international price as a, you know, cause obviously we've got higher LNG prices uh, in Europe, natural gas prices, I should have said in Europe than we do in North America. Yeah, I think there's like three zone pricing. There's the European pricing, which is the highest around, um, you know, Vermilion just put out a press release showing that, you know, the price, uh, you know, today is like $22 US yeah. MCF, but they were selling hedging into 2024 at over $30 uh, on MCF. 
because people thought there'd be a big drawdown this winter. And so the storage build would take more and cost more. European prices would be the highest. Then just uh, below that would be Asian prices. So prices going into markets in China and South Korea and Japan, they would probably be in the mid to high teens. And then you come back to North America and then we have a locked in system here. Um, and so prices here are the cheapest yeah. uh, relative to other places around the world. Just just quickly, you know, obviously there was the big, uh, you know, sort of September 21, I think, in through last year, you know, we call it an energy crisis, certain shortages, you know, huge problems if you're in an emerging market. You know, when you have the U.S. dollar going up in conjunction with energy prices, it was a nightmare. You know, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, et cetera. Then Europe comes in and tries to buy the gas they didn't have pushing the prices up. Again, who can't afford that? You know, developing yeah. nations. I mean, all of that. This is just asking for your take on it. And that is, did you see any lessons learned? I mean, I'm astounded when I read stuff coming out of Europe. It's like 2000, you know, September 221 through 222 never happened. Yeah, I, it, you know, you know, Europe, uh, you know, really didn't focus on natural gas. Um, and, you know, they were they were trying to stop fossil fuel drilling in France yeah. Yeah. Um, going into, you know, into uh, the Netherlands uh, because of the uh, earthquakes. They wanted to shut down the biggest, the, Gr the Grogan field, one of the biggest fields in uh, Europe uh, because of that. Um, and, uh, you know, Germany was slower on allowing drilling. But LNG, as you said, they, they just uh, it's like, you know, wartime. You make things happen and, you know, and, and you just make it happen, just like, uh, you know, what happened in, you know, you know, in World War Two, where the American economy turned to a war economy very quickly. And, uh, you know, everything had to be built quickly. And, um, you know, the roadblocks of, you know, jurisdictions uh, putting their two feet in there uh, never happened. It was thrown away saying this is in the best interest of the national uh, effort uh, to win the war. So I think that. Uh, you know, these these countries in, 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 in uh, South America and in Africa are going to have to look for their, to drill up and find energy resources of their own. And that's why part of the company list that we cover are international names, companies that are working in Colombia, Brazil, Trinidad. Yep. Uh, in Asia, we have a company we cover that's offshore Thailand. Uh, and what we want to do is uh, find more companies that are uh, drilling internationally. Vermilion, of course, is, is drilling in Europe in a number of places uh, so that if they find the reserves, then they can be more self-sufficient and not need to import. Uh, but again, the rule of law has to be there. There's a lot of countries where despots are running in Africa where, you know, of course, you don't want to put money in if you don't think you're going to get your returns out. Um, and so uh, again, the rule of law is going to be an issue that we hope will be, be resolved in some of these jurisdictions that are going to be significant importers of, of energy in the years ahead. Well, let me finish with this. You've got a major conference coming up in Calgary in October. And I mean, uh, you know, you, you, this is a chance for people to go face to face with the companies themselves. That's what's so unique about this. You don't have to read it. You can bring your questions right there directly. And I know, you know, with Money Talks, uh, we've got uh, both Grant Longhurst and we've got Victor, uh, Victor going over to uh, help host the event. But tell me just a little bit more about it, uh, like especially the focus. What will people walk away from from your major conference? Well, what we've done this year is uh, uh, is we've expanded the taken way more space, and we've got the the Bella Hall, which we're going to start the plenary, and where I'll be doing my introduction speech. But introducing uh, the conference opening will be our premier, um, Daniel Smith, is coming to open the conference, so that's a new thing for us. Last year we had thirty four companies between clean tech and and the conventional. 
This year we're going to have 45, so a big increase in the, in yeah. the attendance there. But just giving you a couple examples, in the natural gas side, Tourmaline, Birchcliff, New Vista are coming. In the liquid side, Crescent Point, Strathcona, InPlay, and Surge. Um, on the service side, STEP, Trican, and CES are coming in Essential. On the international EMP, we've got Avopetro, Canical, Grand Tierra, Touchstone, Valura. And then the clean tech, we've got helium, copper, lithium, uh, uranium companies. One of them, uh, you may know the CEO, Drew Zimmerman, is the CEO of, uh, of yes. Stallion Discoveries. And he'll be there presenting the uranium upside that he has from his Saskatchewan assets. So we, and then the royalty, we have Source Rock of Royalty and Topaz coming. So we, we, we really have a, yeah. a wide yeah. variety. And the benefit is the sessions are 35 minutes. 25 minutes, the companies tell their story. Then the moderator hosts like Victor and Grant will have a 10-minute Q&A. But then we have booth rooms. So we have massive amounts of time broken up where people can go to the booths and spend time with the management, asking them additional questions, learning more about the stories, similar what to what like you have at the World Outlook, where you have the booths there and companies can and you spend time uh, with the, with attendees and and attendees can ask a lot of the questions they want. We have one other new thing this year: Step Energy, which is one of uh, the energy service companies coming, is bringing two units. One of them a frac unit, so people can see what that's all about, and then a coil tubing control unit. So people can learn more about that. So we're going to have the first time of a show and tell of a of product. Uh, so it just shows you that every year we try to find ways to make the conference bigger and better. Last year, we had uh, 560 attendees. This year, we have capacity for over 800. So uh, we're, we're on the marketing campaign. And I, I gather you are twisted patty there. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't, like, I don't like this part. Hey, w give me the dates once again, though, first, before I, before I tell the audience something. I hope you've got your ears plugged. But uh, what are the dates again? It is one day, Saturday, October 14th at yeah. Mount Royal University in Calgary. Uh, people can, you know, if they're from out of town, if they have friends, they can stay there. There's all, lots of hotels in the area. So people can just uh, book on their favorite travel website to get themselves a hotel. Great. The conference starts uh, at eight o'clock with breakfast, uh, and uh, we have sponsored breakfast and lunch so people have food during the day. Uh, and uh, it'll probably finish around four four thirty uh, on that Saturday. Um, so it's a full day. There's five presentation uh, sessions, and we have nine rooms. And one of them is the Money Talks room, as you mentioned, where Victor and Grant will be hosting that room on behalf of uh, yourself and Money Talks. Well, speaking of Money Talks, now this is the part uh, you didn't, well, we didn't check with you, but we talked with Patty about this. If you are a Money Talks listener, take advantage of this, you know, uh, that this is a, a terrific deal. If you subscribe for just uh, the three-month Schachter Energy Report, $249 for the quarter, great rate. No, better rate than that. We get you $100 off that rate plus two tickets. That's a huge value. I mean, we're talking uh, what the tickets are? What uh, two hundred ninety nine dollars each? Uh, the 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 early bird are one nineteen, so two oh, thirty eight right. right now. But then after September fifteenth, they go up to one seventy nine. So whatever okay. it is, sorry, taking yeah. the one forty nine for for the first quarter and then going to the regular rate gives them the two tickets. So anyone who can come from anywhere in Western Canada to the event and and again on the I think Grant has the list of all the companies that have signed up uh, you can see if you own any of them and if you do if you want FaceTime with it if you went to to buy a car you'd want to go and see the car read consumer yeah. reports go and take the test drive 
come and do a test drive with the companies you own. Well, we're going to put all that information up on the website too. And, uh, you know, our social media, our emails, et cetera. But I just, uh, my point is, hey, Money Talks listeners, get a hundred bucks off, take advantage of it. And uh, we thank Patty for that. And you also, Joseph. But look, that's going to be a terrific event, October 14th. But in the meantime, I want to thank you for taking the time right now. Pivotal point, uh, you know, in the energy markets, uh, people should pay attention. Thank you, Joseph. My pleasure. Good to be with you again.